Thank you for that introduction, Triple Threat Emery. And this is We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020, winding down to the end of 2021. I may be preparing a New Year's message, even as I delivered a Christmas message. They will be found on the category called Special Messages on the website. Speaking of the website, I would like to heartily thank and express my gratitude to my dear friend and co-laborer, Emery Persinger, for all his labor and many countless hours of labor and love and burning of the midnight oil to put up lenses, and to put up the double speed in Revelation, to put up the Israel of God, and to distinguish an 11-part hell series and many other things that he's done to really beef up the website. And I know how many countless hours he's put in because he's constantly telling me he's putting in countless hours. No, he didn't at all do that, but I know it has to take that many hours to do that. And I'm extraordinarily grateful and consider it a marvelous contribution to the gospel of the saving grace and the universal saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to this generation. So thank you for those many, many hours, Emery. I also want to mention, speaking of men who can be commended, that we will be, you should be expecting four or five messages from Pastor Brian Messick that will be up on the website also, up on the website because I for one highly recommend him and his ministry. Like Paul recommended Timothy, Brian has been a, a man that I have seen grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ now for decades, literally. And he has been tried and tested. He's one of those men that in Psalm 94, 12, has been taught by the Lord and by suffering and experience and adversity, and he's been through both. Both of those things qualify a man to speak the word of God. And Brian represents the kind of man that receives the baton for the next generation, and I highly recommend his ministry to you. We had the privilege and the honor of ordaining him right here at Tetelestai Church uh, over five years ago now. And again, I highly recommend him and his ministry to you. There will be several messages that he'll be bringing forth. We don't know exactly when they will appear on the website, but it won't be too long. The third commendation is not quite as joyous, but in a way it is, but it's a mixture of joy and sadness that I announce the passing into the presence of the Lord of our brother Jeff Rupnik, who has been a faithful member of our Tetelestai phalanx for many, many years. Jeff, it says in his obituary, died suddenly on Thanksgiving Day and I want to recommend 
his memory and commend his memory because he's one of those people who also endured much adversity. He endured the kind of grief and suffering, internal suffering, for which they don't write sympathy cards. And he battled a lot of internal struggles and had a lot of difficult issues. But he stayed true to the word. In, I was actually not apprised of his passing until the day before his funeral could not attend. But our sympathy is certainly extended to the people that knew him in our church. And I think he often came to one of the overflow rooms here. And in his obituary it said that he studied the word of God every day. And it also says that he was very beloved by his family, his mother and father, his brothers and sisters, and also his many nieces and nephews who loved him dearly. He was a musician and a pretty excellent guitarist. And for the past couple of years, during the course of this pandemic, I had a lot of personal communication with him through texting and through the phone. And many times he would send me examples of his songs. I would even do requests for Beatles songs and he'd play them and send them to me in, by email. And so I was delighted to have a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jeff in the past couple of years. And we're certainly gonna miss him. I highly respect him. He's one of those of the poor in spirit to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven. Yours, Jeff, is the kingdom of heaven. And again, I have to say it, we'll see you soon. Fourthly, I wanna commend our whole church for their generosity in the Treasures for Children campaign in which you brought in toys, new toys for the children of this area and it's been overwhelming how you've responded and we're anticipating, well now, we already look back on no doubt the joy that was experienced by perhaps even hundreds of children as a result of your generosity. So I know that Christ is glorified by that graciousness that you've shown. And so, now Father, we pray that you'll bless our continuing exposition of your word to the edification of the Messianic community and to our recognition of our identity as priests and as a kingdom of priests. Lord Jesus, I ask that you'll speak an encouraging word to the weary by this exposition of the scripture. Now, today the message is called Implications. We've done a couple called Inferences. Today, Implications, I'm gonna let that speak for itself and what I mean by Implications. Of Jesus, Peter proclaimed in his famous Pentecost sermon, God raised him up. And that word in the Greek is anistemi. It's a very important word in the New Testament as well as the old. Anistemi. Anistemi. And it means to raise up, in this case, 
by bodily resurrection from the dead. God raised him up, releasing him from the birth pains of death because, and this is the phrase I want to emphasize, it was not possible for him to be held by it, that is, by death. It was not possible that Jesus could be held by death. And why is this? First, because he is a divine person, an eternal person. In his case and his alone, even his body did not see corruption in the grave for three days and three nights. He was an eternal person and is an eternal person. Second, because God's intention from eternity was to destroy death by raising his son from the dead. Death had the power to hold the priests of the Levitical order when they died. Death held them. Consequently, another priest had to follow in succession when the archpriest died. The inherent weakness of the Levitical priesthood was the, that death was able to hold these priests when they died. And thus, death ended their tenure as priests and archpriests. But death was not powerful enough to hold Jesus the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This priest is a divine and a human person. He remains forever the only mediator between God and all of humanity because he lives forever. Death could not hold him. So there is no successor for him. There's a correlation here to John's apocalypse, which we know more popularly as the book of Revelation. For when John sees the one like a son of man on the Isle of Patmos, he notes that this son of man is, quote, dressed in a long robe down to his feet with a gold sash around his chest. That's Revelation 1.13. More than one commentator had noted, has noted that this kind of clothing is indicative of the priesthood. For example, Matthew Henry, whose commentary is now public domain, he wrote, the glorious form in which Christ appeared in several particulars. One, he was clothed with a garment down to the foot, a princely and priestly robe, denoting righteousness and honor. Second, Matthew Henry said, he was girt about with a golden girdle, the breastplate of the high priest, on which the names of his people are engraven. He was ready girt to do the work of a redeemer. Also, A.T. Robertson Citing Josephus, the historian Josephus, from his book Antiquities, chapter 3, paragraph 7, line 2, Josephus wrote that high girding, that is when there's a belt or a girding around the high part of the chest or just below the chest, that high girding, as it called it, was a mark of dignity as of the high priest. Again, that's Josephus.
For as A.T. Robertson says, the preposition pros with the locative can be compared to a verse in Mark 5.11. And he says that the golden belt has to do with a kind of clothing that has to do with the priesthood. That's what's implied. In Exodus 28.31, and I think this is even more important, we have a phrase called the robe of the ephod of the high priest. And the word there, the descriptive term is hupo dutes, and then this word, P-O-D, eta e r eta e s poderes, poderes. And that's used again for the robe of the high priest, the ephod of the high priest. And that's the same word that describes the priestly robe in Revelation 1.13. The Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Exodus 28.31, used that same word, poderes, again used by John in Revelation 1.13. It's also possible that John himself was attached to the priestly ministry of the of Israel before he met Jesus. This garment worn by the Son of Man is suggestive, therefore, of his high priestly office and function, and that he's seen by John among seven lampstands suggests that he has the power to keep lit or to snuff out each menorah. That's the priestly duty. This means that the Son of Man as archpriest has power and authority over all the churches. He may even remove a lampstand out of its place and by doing so end the efficacy of a given church. In other words, the true identity of a church, the true function of a church can be lost by various forms of negative volition and he can therefore snuff out the light of that church. Hopefully he does not do that to the church in America altogether because then we're finished or the church in any given nation. What is equally striking in Revelation chapter one is John's reaction when he takes in the whole vision of this one like a son of man and the response of the son of man to John's reaction. We find this in Revelation 1, 17 and 18 and thankfully after 515 hours of teaching Revelation, we have a translation of it that goes like this. And when I saw him, I fell down before his feet as a dead man. But having placed his right hand on me, he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. But look, I'm alive for the endless ages, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. So you, do you get the picture? You get the picture of someone with a priestly robe, and you get the picture of someone who lives forever, and you get the picture that this is the one who is prefigured by the priest, Melchizedek, who has simply this said about him in the scriptures, that he lives. This one with a priestly robe who's clearly a divine personage in Revelation 1, 
lives forever. Jesus, a priest like Melchizedek, lives forever. There is a revelation connection here. Having the keys of death and of Hades means that he has destroyed the one who has used the power of death to hold humanity in slavery to fear all their lives. Destroying the devil, the slanderer, Hebrews 2.14, Jesus also destroyed his lie and his accusation that these early Christians had no archpriest to represent and advocate for them. The Son of God was made manifest for this very purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, his lies, his slander, his accusation. Thank God for the freedom from death's grip that we all have because of our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And thank God for the freedom of knowing the truth that death has no hold on us or on any human being any longer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who has given us the victory over death and over the fear of death. With victory over the fear of death, we are also given the freedom of the knowledge of the truth. To know the truth is to be free from the lie and from all lies. As the God of this age, the devil is a liar by nature. As the God of this age, as he's called in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he broadcasts the lie in many forms. <clears throat> the lie boils down to the worship of the, the creature over the creator, but it fans out into many forms and many propagandas and many accusations. He speaks his slander through pseudoscientists, through corrupt politicians, through propagandists who masquerade as news broadcasters. He spews his lies through a clergy who suffers from scatosis, a blackout of the mind and heart due to a willful blockade against insights. When the lie lies over a nation like a sewage-soaked blanket, the people are left depressed and enslaved. When the lie is dispelled under the power and authority of the gospel of God about his son, the people rejoice. They're liberated from the false burden and the stench of the lie. Some will know the reason why this liberation happens and tie it to the gospel. Others will simply sense a kind of joy and liberation but have no idea where it came from. John's response in his encounter with one like a son of man was an encounter with a divine and a human person. The robe worn by this person suggests that he's some kind of priest. From Hebrews, we know that this is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Like the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this son of man lives and announces it. I live forever. I'm alive for the ages of ages. He lives forever after becoming dead 
death couldn't hold him. One wonders what attire Melchizedek wore when he met Abraham. And perhaps his clothing added to the suggestion of his dignity in the eyes of Abraham, the patriarch. Now this one like a son of man also reminds us of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14. For from the standpoint of Daniel's night vision of the son of man in Daniel 7.13. He said, I saw one like a son of man. His vision of the son of man is also clearly referred to in Revelation 1.7 and probably in 1.10-18 also. In Daniel's vision, the son of man is seen being escorted evidently by angelic dignitaries before one called the Ancient of Days, the enthroned one. Given the mounting light from Hebrews and its conflation with Revelation, it must be that the approach of the Son of Man in Daniel's vision to the Ancient of Days is the approach of the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to God the Father, who subsequently tells him to be seated at his right side after his once and for all and forever efficacious sacrifice for all the sins of all the world and after being resurrected from the dead. The notion that the robe of the Son of Man suggests a priestly garb or clothing is further strengthened by the declaration by John in Revelation 1, 5, and 6 that, quote, Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr, the firstborn out from among the dead ones and the ruler of the kings of the earth loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom, all of us, priests to God, even his father. Moreover, there are also references to an international kingdom of priests throughout this present age in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, which reads this way. And they sang a new song, the lyrics going like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered and you bought for God by your blood people from every tribe and language and people group and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests, and they will reign on the earth. And also Revelation 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. <clears throat> the second death has no authority over them. Instead, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for 1,000 years. These references in Revelation all arise from Exodus 19, 5, and 6. They refer to a priesthood of Christians or saints in the present age. The 1,000-year reference is a symbolic number, not a literal one. It covers the duration of the present evil age. Those in whom God has evoked faith are all priests and they have the privilege of reigning with Jesus now as more than conquerors through him who loved them and who constituted them as a kingdom of priests. 
Romans 8.37 and Romans 5.17 comes into play as we who reign through him who loved us. Him who loved us, Romans 8.37, Revelation 1.5. In Romans, though Paul does not mention Jesus explicitly to be a priest or an archpriest, he never does. Nevertheless, the implication is certainly there. For in Romans 8.34, it says, and who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, even more, who was raised up, who is at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf? Of course not. He certainly won't condemn. So by Paul saying that Christ, the one who died, was resurrected and is at the right hand of God advocating or interceding on our behalf is tantamount to calling Christ the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't explicitly state it, but the implication is there in Paul. Christ is the archpriest forever who always lives to intercede for us to save us completely. And though Paul doesn't explicitly call the saints priests or even a kingdom of priests, the implication is very much present in saying that we have access, which is the privilege of priests, access into this grace wherein we stand in Romans 5.2. And by saying that, quote, those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, Romans 5.17. So in 5.2, with access, we have the implication of priests, and in Romans 5.17, the reigning, we have the implication of kings. In addition, priestly function is certainly alluded to in Romans 12.1, for by the mercies so by the mercies of God, siblings, I urge you to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice or offering, consecrated and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Paul doesn't say there, hey, you're priests, but the implication is there because he's asking us to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. So one could easily add the phrase as priests to this verse, saying that we present our bodies to him which is our reasonable act of worship as priests. Even though it doesn't say that, the implication is there. For the readers are counseled to offer a sacrifice as an offering, and it's of priests that said they must have something to offer. We have something to offer, and that's our very total selves. The same can be said of Hebrews 9.14, where our service to the living God is clearly that of priests. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from sinful things we've done so that we can serve the living God? Could we add as priests? Of course we could. Revelation and 1 Peter are New Testament documents that explicitly state 
that Christians in this age are a kingdom of priests. Get the point here. Jesus is being referred to as being perfected in Hebrews. The idea is that he is vocationally perfected as archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But there's also a reference to saints or believers being perfected in Hebrews. We too are being perfected in our role and vocation as priests, as effective intercessors, as effective mediators, really, in this world. And so the term completion has to do not only with Jesus' vocational completion as a priest, but ours too. We must gain and retain our identity as a kingdom of priests if we're going to be truly qualified for our role in this world. So again, I'll say Revelation and 1 Peter are New Testament documents that explicitly state that Christians in this age are a kingdom of priests. We've just looked at Revelation 1, 5 to 6, 5, 9 to 10, and Revelation 20, verse 6. And 1 Peter, we've also seen that in recent messages, 1 Peter couldn't be more explicit when it says, quote, and you yourselves as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices rendered acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Can't get more explicit than that in 1 Peter 2.5. And again in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a royal priesthood in order that you would declare his manifestations of divine power that we're to declare his virtues or proclaim his virtues means, and I think that this can be borne out as I show in a footnote and you'll see it in this printed version. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light to do something. And that is to declare his manifestations of divine power. The greatest manifestation of divine power was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead which includes the resurrection of all humankind ultimately and God becoming all in all. As is usual with Paul, he implies, today's message is called implications, he implies the priesthood of the saints with his own reference to the saints being built up on the foundation laid by the apostles and Christian prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone and by Paul describing, quote, this whole building as being, quote, joined together and caused to grow into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for God's living space in the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2.20 to 22. Compare that with 1 Peter 2.5. As in Romans 5.2, where the access of the justified to the grace of God is comparable to the saints' access to the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16. So, the holy temple of God, or the holy temple in the Lord, and God's living space in the Spirit is correlated or linked to 
the access provided to both Jews and Gentiles by one spirit to the Father, thanks to the blood of Jesus and his death, which broke down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2:13 to 18. There's a lot there. In addition to all this, we've already shown in Romans, Paul refers to the saints offering their own bodies, which means their whole persons, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Each saint, you and me, each of us and all of us, is to be the living space of God in the spirit in this world, as the messianic community is collectively the living space for God in this world. Our offering is no doubt acceptable to God when we offer our bodies to God because as Peter says, our offerings are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and because of him. This is also called our logical or reasonable spiritual service. The reasonableness of this service in Romans 12.1 is no doubt because our great archpriest, quote, offered his own body to God according to God's will, in Hebrews 10.10. So it's both logical and reasonable that we be imitators of our great archpriest as members of a royal priesthood by offering our bodies to God and that this also is in accord with the good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. In Romans 12, 2. So by saying that Christians are a household over which we have a great archpriest, Hebrews says that explicitly in Hebrews 10, 21, shares this conviction made explicitly in Revelation and Peter and implicitly in Paul. Those of us who are this household are on the king's highway. That's what it's called in Isaiah 35, 8 to 10. It's called a highway of holiness, but it's nicknamed the King's Highway, where feeble hands are strengthened and knees that give way are steadied. Isaiah 35, 3 and Hebrews 12, 12. We approach with boldness the Holy of Holies in heaven through a highway paved by the blood of Jesus, a new and living highway, says Hebrews 10.20. So let 2022 be called the year of the king's highway, even as 2021 has been the year of the great king. And let the spirit of grace teach us what this means throughout this next year. And perhaps our next message will be a New Year's message. To sum up, though, for today's message, in Paul's epistles, at least in Romans and Ephesians, there is the implication of the priesthood of the saints in union with Christ, even as in Paul and his writings, there's a strong implication of the perpetual priesthood of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. What is surely not an implication in all of Paul is the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's not an implication. That is a direct proclamation made all throughout Paul's epistles. What is an implication in Paul is Jesus' priesthood 
and the priesthood of the saints. What is surely not an implication in Hebrews is the perpetual archpriesthood of Jesus. And his resurrection from the dead is stated only once explicitly in Hebrews. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the implication throughout. Both Revelation and 1 Peter makes explicit references to the messianic community being a royal priesthood. While Jesus is implied to be the archpriest and king of this royal priesthood or kingdom of priests. Only Hebrews reveals Jesus to be the very priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who is declared to be so by the divine oath fortified acclamation of Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4. Now, in the last phase of this message, let's consider the one explicit reference in Hebrews to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, namely Hebrews 13.20. That single explicit reference is of singular importance in the homily. It constitutes the conclusion of the entire discourse that we call Hebrews. And it comprises the prologue of the benediction and doxology of Hebrews 13.21. And after that, all that's left in Hebrews is the dispatch note, possibly written by Paul, as we've seen in Hebrews 13.22-25. So consider Hebrews 13.20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, by the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with every good thing to do his will, creating in us what is delightful in his sight through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, this is the only explicit reference to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. However, throughout this homily, resurrection is powerfully implicit. Right from the start, resurrection is implicit between the Son's making purification for sins and his being seated at the right side of the majesty in the heavens, Hebrews 1.3. Explicit in Hebrews 13.20 and implicit in Hebrews 1.3 is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by the God of peace came about in answer to the successful and efficacious act of atonement performed by Jesus on the cross, which was followed by his physical death. By the blood of the everlasting covenant in Hebrews 13, 20, means that the resurrection in one important sense was the dramatic validation by God that the blood of Jesus did in fact ratify the new covenant and render obsolete the old covenant. By his blood, the reconciliation of everything in the heavens and on earth could now be brought about and in a sense has already been brought about. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And as Colossians 1.20 says, through him, the son of God's love, to reconcile all things to himself, 
God having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens. The resurrection from, of Jesus Christ from the dead is implicit in Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. For when it says that God brought him into the world, the writer means when God brought Jesus into future world, where all the angels of God were called to worship him. The God who brought up our Lord Jesus from the realm of the dead immediately brought him into the realm of future world where angels are now subjected to him, according to 1 Peter 3.22, and where they adore him continually. All the angels of God worship Jesus who has been resurrected from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is implicit in Hebrews 2.9 because we see Jesus who experienced death for everyone while far from God, now crowned with glory and honor. Having by his own blood brought near to God those who were far away from him and having reconciled two groups who were once at enmity, Jews and Gentiles, making them one new humanity. Ephesians 2, 13 to 14. So he who experienced death for everyone while far from God brought everyone who was far from God near to God. That he who was once crowned with a crown of thorns and far from God is now crowned with glory and honor and at the right side of God surely implies that he was first resurrected from the dead. In fact, the crowning theme of Hebrews all the way through chapter 7 is that we have such an archpriest who sat down at the right side of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the holy place and of the true tabernacle which the Lord set up and not man. Hebrews 8, 1b to 2. The resurrection is implicit. It's an implication in his exaltation. The resurrection is implicit in his forever priesthood, for he is a priest forever by virtue of the fact that he has an incorruptible, indestructible life by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is an archpriest not by virtue of a commandment of the law having to do with fleshly, hereditary descent, but by virtue of an indestructible life. Because he was resurrected from the dead to die no more, Romans 6.10, he always lives to make intercession for us, to save us to the uttermost, which means to save us completely, to sanctify us, body, soul, and spirit. So doesn't it make sense as we approach 2022 that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, that we commit our soul to him as a faithful creator, and that we present and entrust our spirit to him, the God of faithfulness. In closing, when we read of Melchizedek that the scripture testifies that he lives, and that he was made a prefiguration of the Son of God. The implication is that the Son of God also 
lives. He lives perpetually and serves perpetually as our great archpriest because, quote, having made purification for sins, the God of peace resurrected him from the dead to live forever, to be the priest forever as the fulfillment of the prefiguration of Melchizedek and as the one to whom God swore an oath and will never change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So as we round off this message and close, I'd like to look at the next segment that we'll be studying, and that's Hebrews 7, 11 to 17, and merely read my translation of it, in which we can note the resurrection implications in it. Hebrews 7, 11 to 17, I'm going to just read it straight through. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, why was there still a need for another priest to arise? That's the word anistomy again. Arise. Connoting, implying resurrection. Anistemi. Anistemi. More, more like it. Anistemi. A-N-I-S-T-E-M-I. Anistemi. And so, again, let me start it again. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, and that's not a fulfilled condition, that's an unfulfilled condition, or assumes a negative. It was not reached through the Levitical priesthood. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, why was there still a need for another priest to arise? Resurrection implied here in the order of Melchizedek, and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law, that is, the law that makes people priests. For the one about whom these things are being said belongs to a different tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Jesus, the one we're talking about, prefigured in Melchizedek, didn't come from the line of Levi through Aaron. No one has ever served the altar that came from his tribe, the tribe of Judah, a royal tribe. Verse 14 goes on to say, for it is known to everyone that our Lord arose, again, resurrection implication, out of Judah. And Moses never said anything about priests in connection with that tribe. You see, I want to stop for a moment to say this. Satan's accusation of these people was precisely that Jesus couldn't be a priest because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. The answer that this guy is providing under the power of the Holy Spirit is, yeah, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, but he's also a priest. He's a priest who's also a king. He's a priest who's superior to anyone who came from the tribe of Levi. So not only do we not, not only can you say we don't have a high priest, we do have a high priest, and he's a superior one to anyone that ever came through the line of Levi. That's where the 
spiritual component comes in in the conflict between the accuser and Christians. Now in verse seven, 15 of Hebrews 7, it goes on to say, and this is even more clear, if another priest arises, again, he, for the third time, resurrection implication, like Melchizedek, who doesn't become a priest on the basis of a legal commandment based on fleshly descent. But here comes the fourth implication of resurrection in this passage. But based on the power of a life that cannot be brought to an end. Resurrection life. For it has been testified of him, meaning Jesus, in verse 17. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If you're tired of hearing that quote, this is the last time it will be quoted in Hebrews. But there are, are also going to be other allusions to it. So, implications here. Implications of resurrection. Implications of the priesthood, implications, and direct statements that you are a kingdom of priests. And so, Father, we pray that you will continue to perfect and complete us in our vocation as priests. Make us effective priests for the sake of our generation and the sake of generations to come, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of our community for the sake of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.